Over the past several months, there has been a controversy raging in Eretz Yisrael. It has spilled over to the United States as well, over a modern edition of the Chumash called Pshuto Shel Mikra. This Chumash, apparently, I have not seen it, but this Chumash apparently tries to re-emphasize and bring some of the interest and focus back to the study of Chumash according to the Pshat approach, the approach of the plain meaning of the text, at the expense of the traditional, at least in recent centuries, at the expense of the traditional approach of emphasizing Midrash and Rashi. Many of the traditional Gedolim today have expressed reservations, sometimes sharp reservations, with this Chumash. They've said that it's, that it's inappropriate to do this, that it's, uh, our Messiah involves studying Chumash with Rashi, with Midrash, we shouldn't be elevating these other approaches to, uh, to the same level. To the, we shouldn't be dethroning Rashi in favor of these other approaches. The defenders say there are other Rishon, we're quoting, uh, we're quoting I mean, major, major sources in Armasara as well. We'll discuss some aspects of, the, of this controversy a little bit later. We'll begin by focusing on a, on, on a comment of Ibn Ezra in this week's Parsha, in Parsha Sva'era, which which is a is a classic example of the of the tension of the of the divergence sometimes between the pshat approach to chumash and the midrash approach. There is a well known and beloved midrash. They teach it to the kids in school, at least in all the schools that I'm familiar with. That makas dam affected only the mitzrayim, not the Jews. That the, the mitzrayim were all suffering from blood, and the Jews had clean water. And that even when the the mitzri would take the Jew's water, it would turn into blood. Even if the Jew shared it with him, it would turn into blood, unless the mitzri paid for it. The midrash says Rashi brings this briefly. The midrash says in Shmos Rabbah, for example, "Mimakas dam hashiri Yisrael." The Jews got rich from makas dam. You could have a mitzri and a Jew in the same house, a barrel full of water. The mitzri would go and he would and he would he would fill up his his bottle of water from the jar. He would find it full of blood. The Israel would go to the same barrel. He would find water. The mitzri would say, "Let me have a little bit of your water." The Jew would give it to him. It would become dam. They would say, "Let's drink from the same kara. Let's drink from the same the, the same place." So it'll have to be one or the other. Nope, didn't work like that. The Israel shows samayim. The Jew would drink water. The mitzri would drink dam. Kids come home with projects and pictures of the mitzri and the Israel with two straws. Blood is coming out of the Mitzri straw, water is coming out of the, the Jew straw. Only when the Mitzri would purchase the, the water from the Israel, he'd pay cash for it, then he would finally get water, and of course that gave the Jews great leverage over the Egyptians. Mikana, Yisrael, the Israelim got rich from the money they were able to demand that the Mitzrayim give them in order to get water. Ibn Ezra rejects this Midrash. Ibn Ezra says, the Pasuk says that the Mitzrayim dug to find water. They dug to find water, subterranean. They tried to find subterranean water. The, the, Ibn Ezra apparently understands they were successful. Ibn Ezra explains that it was only the surface water that turned into blood, but the Mitzrayim weren't. The water that was subterranean below the earth did not turn into blood. Ibn Ezra says, Rabim Omrim, many say, he's referring to this Midrash, that the water was water in the hands of the Mitzri, that, that the water was blood in the hands of the Mitzri, and Adumim Kedam, Benislav Nubiata Yisraeli. When it was in the hands of the Jew, it was clear. It was uh, potable water, good water. Says Ibn Ezra, Imkain Lamalo Nichtaf Torah. Why would the Torah not write this? The Torah makes a big point out of recording and publicizing and emphasizing Nisim. Sarah has a child at 90. The Torah makes a huge deal out of it. Many Nisim, the Torah clearly articulates and records. Why would the Pasuk not say such a great nace that the water was switching back and forth, that it was. The Jews were spared from this from this plague. Ulafi Daiti, Ibn Ezra says, in my opinion, Makas Dam Vatsvardim Vakinim Haisakalas and Mitzrim Vaivrium. The first three Makas, Dam Tsvardeh Akinim, they affected Mitzri and Jew alike. The Jews were not spared. Why do I say this? Again, he says. Earlier he said, why didn't the Torah write this if the Jews were spared? Especially if the water was switching back and forth. But in general, Ibn Ezra says, Ki Akhar Hakasiv Nirduf, famous expression, we will pursue. We will, we will relentlessly pursue the Pasuk, the text, whatever the text says. The, the Torah does not say that Hashem made any distinction between Jew and Mitzri for the first three Makkahs. But Ezra goes on, he says, that The first Makkah that the Torah says there'll be a difference is Arof. It says, Hashem says, I'll distinguish between the Jews and the Mitzrayim. 
And if you read through all the Psukim, there are five makos in which the Torah says Hashem distinguished between Jews and Egyptians. Arov is the first one, Maka number four, the, the swarm of wild animals. Dever, it says all the mikna, all the cattle of the Egyptians died, and Lechol B'nei Yisrael lo makes echad, not a single cattle of the Jews died. And it says Barad as well. Barad says the hail fell only on the Egyptians. The hail, the hail did not did not affect the not affect the Jews. Did not fall in the Jewish areas. Choshech, it says the, the Mitzrayim suffered in darkness. The ninth plague, Lechol B'nei Yisrael Hayar, the Jews had light. And of course, Makas Bacharos, as we say in the Haggadah. Pesach, the, the entire name of Pesach, the very name of Pesach is because God skipped over the Jewish houses, Asher Pesach Hashem, he skipped over the Jewish houses, Benog Poes Mitzrayim, when he afflicted the Jews, when the Mitzrayim, Vespatenu Itzil, and he saved our houses, that, that's the, the Torah says, you should tell your children, we observe Pesach because Hashem spared us when he, when he killed, he decimated the, the, the Egyptian firstborn, and he spared us, and that's why we have Pesach. So five out of the ten makers, the Torah explicitly says Jews were spared. Arov, Dever, Barad, Choshech, and Max Bacharis. The other five makers, the Torah does not say that Hashem made any distinction between Jew and Egyptian. Dom, Tzvardeh, Akinim, Shechin, and Arba. So Ibn Ezra says, where the Torah says it, Hashem distinguished. Where the Torah does not say it, Hashem did not distinguish. Why? Why was there a difference? Ibn Ezra says, the first three, Dom, Tzvardeh, Akinim, Matiziku. They were annoying, but they weren't. They, they didn't cause great damage. However, the Mitzrayim managed, the Jews managed as well. What do they do for Dam? So the Benazir says earlier, for Dam, they, they, dug, they dug the water. The Benazir has another question, which we showed him deal with. He says, it says the Khartoumim successfully emulated Aaron. Aaron turned water into blood, Khartoumim turned water into blood. Where did the Khartoumim get any water from? The, all the water had turned into blood. According to the Midrash, it says the Mitzrayim could buy it from the Jews. Maybe they bought it from the Jews and then turned it into blood. The precious water that they paid... Heavily for they turn into blood. Ibn Ezra says, nope, Aaron only turned the water, the surface water. Aaron did not turn the water in the, below the surface of the earth into blood. The Khartoumim, they dug. The Pasuk says, the Mitzrayim dug to get water. And the, that, 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 that the Mitzrayim, that the Mitzrayim dug to get, uh, that the Mitzrayim dug to get water. And the, and that some of that water is what the Khartoumim did to turn, to turn, to turn into blood. So the, that's how the Ezra understands that, so it was annoying. The surface water, the river water, the normal sources of water they couldn't drink. They had to dig to get water underground. It was a hassle. It was annoying, but it wasn't lethal. It wasn't, uh, wasn't that harmful. So Ma'at Taziku, he says, that this didn't cause great harm to the, didn't cause great harm to the, to any of the people. So the Jews could suffer through it also. Arav was Kashi, he says. Arav was a severe plague. That's why Hashem was Mafresh. Hashem distinguished between Jews and Egyptians. And Dever as well, Dever and Barad, which killed all the cattle. The, the Dever was a plague of the cattle, and the Barad killed everything that was left outside. Those would have been very harmful. It would have caused great economic harm to the to the Jews. So Hashem spared them. What about Arba? Arba was pretty bad for the Arba wiped out all the crops. Arba meant death in in, in those agricultural communities. Says the Benazir, but they were leaving Egypt. So the, the Egyptians were the ones who relied on the, the stores of crops. For them, the Arba was devastating. But the Jews were leaving. So whatever they were going to... They brought some food in the desert, obviously. They brought the matzah and so on. But, that, but whatever they left, whatever they brought from Egypt wasn't going to be there crucial for them. They had the mud, they had other things, they had, whatever they had. But the... So the crops, that primarily affected the Egyptians. It didn't matter if it... Even though the Arba would have would have been equal opportunity. It did spread over everywhere in Mitzrayim. The harm it did wouldn't have been so bad for the Jews. And Shechem, again, he says, Shechem was, Shechem was, not, Shechem was not that bad, and, the, and they could survive the Shechem. So Dom, Tzvardeah, Kinim, and Shechem weren't so severe. Arav was pretty severe, but they were leaving anyway. But they, they left with their cattle. They brought all the cattle with them. So that's why Dever and, uh, Dever and Barad spared the Jews, because they needed, Hashem wanted to preserve their cattle. And the... And of course, um, of course, Marcus Bacharus was uh, was horrifyingly lethal. I'm not sure, according to Ben Ezra, why why the Jews were spared for Choshech. Choshech doesn't sound like it was so severe. I mean, it would have been very unpleasant, certainly, certainly according to the Midrash, that it physically froze them into place. So, I'm not sure. But Ben Ezra doesn't address that. But he says the five makos that the Torah says Hashem distinguished Jews and Egyptians, the Jews were spared. The, 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 but the other five, where the Torah does not mention anything, the Psukim do not mention anything about a distinction between Jew and non-Jew, the Makkas affected Jew and Egyptian equally. And Ibn Ezra says his motivation, he, does, he doesn't acknowledge it. It's a Midrash. He says, Rabbim say this, that all the Makkas, the Jews were spared. He rejects it. First of all, why wouldn't the Torah write this? 
And more generally, he says, Achar HaKasuv Nirdof, our goal, our duty is to pursue the Psukim, the, the road for Yapshat, those who pursue Pshat, Ibn Ezra is one of the most prominent of them, we have to pursue the Pshat, he says, the Pshat is, if the Torah says there were five makas that, that, that spared the Jews, then there were five makas that spared the Jews. If the other five makas of the Torah does not say the Jews were spared, then those makas did not spare the Jews. This, this idea of Ibn Ezra is mentioned by various other Rishon. The Ralbag, the Ralbag was one of the most radical of the philosophical Rishonim. He was a follower of the Rambam, but even more extreme, as, as other Rishonim noted. The Ralbag, was, Ralbag, on the one hand, was a great, also a great, uh, a great Pashtun, a great uh, exegete in the school of Pshat, besides being a great philosopher and a radical philosopher. And he also, not surprisingly, therefore, was a follower of Ibn Ezra. He, was, he often quotes Ibn Ezra. He quotes Ibn Ezra actually much more than he quotes Rashi. He quotes Rashi occasionally, but relatively rarely. He quotes Ibn Ezra relatively more frequently. Ralbag says, going on Makas Aruf, the first Makkah in which the Torah says, Vihifla, Vihlesi Bayamahu Eret Goshen. God says he will distinguish on that day, the day of the Arov, between Goshen and between Goshen and uh, the rest of Mitzrayim. Says Ralbag, <coughs> based on the language of the Pasuk, Yitachain, it is possible, Shashar Hamakos, Hayukolim, Yisrael, Mitzrayim, other Makkahs included Jew and Egyptian alike, Kvashakasim Akacham Ibn Ezra, as Ibn Ezra has said. The Tur, Rabbi Yaakov Ben Asher, Son of the Rush, the author of the Tur, also wrote a commentary to the Torah. His, his, more famous than his commentary to the Torah is his, is his introductory commentary to his commentary, the Balaturim, the full of brilliant and clever gematrios and, and drush of the Masera and so on. But he actually wrote a more uh, bread and butter, meat and potatoes, Pirish La Torah as well, the, called the Tur Ha'arach. Much of it is, a, is an anthology of earlier Rishonim, but he does add his own, his own comments as well. On this, on this question of whether the Makas Dam and four of the other Makas affected the Jews or not, the, so the, the Torah, Allah Torah, brings the Benezra, Kasev Rabbi Avram, he brings the Benezra, and the Torah is not happy. The Torah thinks the Benezra is making a big mistake here. He says, the Haflagos his independence and his, his refusal to submit to the authority of the Chachamim, and his pursuing pshat, his obsession with pshat. Again, Ibn Ezra was proud of pursuing pshat. We, we always chase pshat. Says, says the tour, he's, he, he, he's taking this a little too far, his, his willingness to freely disagree with the Chachamim and his obsession with pshat. They're the ones, it's, it's these uh, prejudices or these... Uh, doctrines of his that, that pushed him into this making such a mistake here, he says. Ki chalila, chas v'shalom, the Torah says. Lahakos is Yisrael. The Torah does not engage the question of pshat or not. He doesn't engage the, the, the diuk from the psukim. Doesn't, he doesn't even, he doesn't, he's not even focused so much on the authority of the Midrash. He just religiously, theologically, the Torah is simply inconceivable to him that God, who loves the Jewish people, b'ni b'chari Yisrael, that God would have smote the Jewish people. You think it's harder for Hashem? You think Hashem couldn't be bothered? It was, it was too much work for him to distinguish between the Israel? Hashem, Hashem doesn't have the resources to, to, to strike who he wants and spare who he wants. What kind of business is this? He said, Hashem loves the Jews. Why would Hashem punish the Jewish people? And it's ridiculous to say, that it's preposterous to say that, the, that he would have smote the Jewish people that he would have smitten the Jewish people. So, so, so the, the Torah says, when Ezra says this, but he thinks this is a serious mistake. Some later, some later authorities, some later commentaries, super commentaries, were so appalled with the idea that somebody would interpret the Psukim this way, someone like the Ezra would interpret the Psukim this way, that they decided that, it couldn't, that the Ezra couldn't have written such a thing, that these must have been interpolations by... by uh, actors, nefarious actors who wanted to attribute uh, problematic ideas to Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra never could, could have never written such a thing. The Avi Ezri, a commentary to the Ibn Ezra printed in the Kroos Kedolos Chumash, a, a, a fairly from and traditional super commentary on the Ibn Ezra, he says, we certainly, despite what Ibn Ezra seems to say, we certainly accept what Chazal said, we accept Chazal that the Makas Dam did not affect the Jews, Ibn Ezra couldn't have said otherwise. Talmud Toev, Ani Bedas, an erring, a straying student, someone with a, a lack of das, a, an impoverished mind, wrote these things. I have already 
informed you, he says, in the beginning, right, right in the beginning of the Chumash, beginning of Bereshis, Shetalmidim Tawim Paku Plilia, that these erring students did terrible things, they inserted pernicious ideas into Ibn Ezra, things Ibn Ezra never said. This is an idea that the Avi Ezri likes, that he just can't believe Ibn Ezra would have said some of the things that he is recorded as having said, and therefore he says these are interpolations by, by uh, bad faith interpolations by the Talmud Torah. This, this idea that things were put into Ibn Ezra, he's not the only one to say this. The others have said this as well. Ibn Ezra says, as we've discussed in previous year, Ibn Ezra does say so many remarkable and radical things, provocative things sometimes, that there's definitely a strong temptation to say that, he, that, that someone as revered and as eminent a figure as Ibn Ezra couldn't possibly have said the things that he apparently said. The Chida, the Rav Chaim Yosef David Azulai, the great Svardik, polymath, a great Chacham in many areas of two centuries ago. So the Chidah, besides being a tremendous Talmud Chacham and a fascinating figure in, in many ways, he was also a great bibliophile, a great historian and bibliophile. The Chidah loved books. He traveled a lot. And throughout his travels, he sought out libraries. He, he, he knew all kinds of things about Hebrew books and Hebrew history. His Shem HaGadolim, his, his classic uh, bibliography and short literary biographies of, of various Gedolim Yisrael, is still a classic today. And he, scholars today recognize that, that, that he, was a, he, he, had a keen, he had a keen sense of history, of bibliography. He understood books. He understood, he often, he often uncovered confusion where other people confused authors with similar names or similar sounding books. The, the Chita had a very sharp and very keen understanding of books and personalities and history. On the other hand, he was also very traditional. He also, he was a Makubal. He believed in the hidden wisdom of the Kabbalah. And in many ways, he was very, very traditional. And many things he says modern scholars would not accept because he, he often sided with the traditional view of things. So in his discussion of Ibn Ezra, the Chida says that, in his entry for Ibn Ezra, he says that he records a tradition. He says Rabbi Binyamin Espinoza brings in the name of Rabbi Rafael Ashkenazi and Italian rabbis in Xaviad and some manuscript work, that they have ascertained that Talmidim of the Ibn Ezra they have tampered with his pirush, and they added things that he never wrote. And anything that you find in the Chumash and the Nevi'im that, that opposes Divrei Rosenuzal, that, that's in conflict with, with Chazal, that, cannot, that is not from Ibn Ezra himself, that is from his Talmidim, without his knowledge, after he passed away, they tampered with his pirush, and it's not, he's not to blame. That's what they say. Says the Chida, If this is true, that not everything Ibn Ezra is authentic, then we can uh, rest, we can sleep much easier because lots of very provocative things in Ibn Ezra he never really wrote. If this is true, the Chida says, he's not sure, this, he's not sure how true this is. He says, one argument against this, against this being true is, he says, Zimnin Rabbeinu HaRamban, Sometimes the Ramban, he says, uh, brings down some of these provocative ideas of Ibn Ezra and criticizes him very sharply. He brings one, one or two examples, which we'll discuss soon. He says that the Ramban, Ramban didn't, did not live hundreds of years after Ibn Ezra and for, for time, enough time to have elapsed for the Pirush to have been, to have been tampered with. Ramban was relatively close to the Ibn Ezra's time, and he believed this was an authentic manuscript of Ibn Ezra, whatever he saw. On the other hand, the Chidah says that argument cut, cut, cuts both ways, because there's lots of uh, problematic and bizarre things Ibn Ezra says, which Ramban does not comment on. So Ramban was very quick to, to call out Ibn Ezra and criticize him, criticize him sharply where he disagreed with him, where he thought what he was saying was problematic, and yet he ignores many of these problematic comments. So that would imply, he says, that there are some things that are uh, not from Ibn Ezra, that, that those Ramban didn't have. So maybe some of the provocative things are Ibn Ezra's, not all of them. It's kind of an awkward compromise. He, he said some things that are problematic and radical. The Ramban himself, he considered, his, uh, considered it a, a core mission of his to correct Ibn Ezra to the extent that in, in, in the very introduction to his his commentary to the Torah, he writes, you know, Rashi is great, Rashi is Mishpat HaBachara, Rashi is the, has the pride of place among biblical commentaries, and Ibn Ezra, he says, Ibn Ezra was an incredibly influential and important commentary, but he says, Ibn Ezra, with Ibn Ezra, I have more mixed feelings, he says, with Ibn Ezra, my attitude is, Tochachas Megula Ava Mesuteris, I will, I will have overt reproof and challenge, even though, uh, deeper down, I, I, I love and revere Ibn Ezra, but, he, he acknowledges that a big part of his mission is to call out Ibn Ezra when he thinks are Ibn Ezra's excesses and errors. So, so to say that he didn't have half the comments of Ibn Ezra, I don't know. But I'll call upon him. There is this school of thought that believes that at least some of the 
some of the provocative comments in Ibn Ezra are, are not authentic. But again, I, I, this is motivated apparently by theology and by religious conviction. I don't know that there is, as far as I know, there's no scholarly evidence, there's no manuscript evidence, there, there, there are no uh, you know, non-ideological reasons to believe Ibn Ezra didn't write these things, but nevertheless, the, the, there were some Gedolim who believed that Ibn Ezra couldn't have written some of the thing, at least some of the things attributed to him. And the truth is, though, as the Chidah says, that you know, one problem is that Ramban quotes many of these things. In addition, going back to the specific example which, with which we began tonight, the, the example of the Ezra's comments about Makas Dam, the idea that the first five plagues affle- affle- afflicted Jew and Egyptian, as we mentioned, the Ralbag, the Ralbag was not as early as Ramban, he was a few generations later, the Ralbag thought Ibn Ezra said this, and he had no problem with this, A, he thought it was authentic, and B, he thought it was even correct. Even the Tur, the Tur also was 14th century, the, even the Tur, the Tur did not think Ibn Ezra was right about this, the Tur was actually quite, uh, the Tur was actually quite, quite unhappy about, about what Ibn Ezra said, but he didn't doubt Ibn Ezra wrote it. He, he, that, that, so the, so the Tur was late, 13, late 13th and early 14th century. The, the, the Ibn Ezra himself was, was quite, was much earlier. The, the, the Ibn Ezra himself was back in the very late 11th, and, uh, and, and he, he flourished during the 12th century. So it was, so, so it was uh, you know, 200 years later, but uh, these were Gedele Harishonim, the, the Ralbag and the Tor, neither of, neither of whom seemed to have entertained the possibility that Ibn Ezra didn't write this. So either they were, either they were also wrong, and uh, they, they were simply... Uh, they, they weren't savvy enough to realize that Ezra would tell you that Ibn Ezra never could have written this, or, or, they, uh, or he didn't realize that they, that they believed that Ibn Ezra had said this. Okay, so I don't know, but I'll call upon him. This is what Ibn Ezra, this is what's written in his Pirush. There are some traditional thinkers who can't believe he would have said such a thing, and there are others who say that he did. Ralbag and the Torah. Ralbag says he said it, and he agrees with it. Ibn Ezra says he said it, and he's terribly wrong. They both agree he said it, though. Okay. So this is the, as Rabban says, as we said before, there are, there, are, there are many places in Ibn Ezra, some of which we've discussed in other shiurim, where Ibn Ezra says you know, radical and provocative things, in particular things which are dismissive of, dismissive of Chazal. One example which the Chidah refers to as an example of a Ibn Ezra which Ramban did take issue with is Ibn Ezra's comment about the 70 souls we had in recent parshias, the 70 people who traveled with Yaakov down to Mitzrayim. This is a famous problem the Rishonim grapple with. The, the Torah says, Kal Nefesh, Habayim, Yaakov, Mitzrayim, Shivim Nefesh, there were 70. They weren't, there were only 69, according to the Torah's own list. And related problem, the, another version of the same problem, is that the Torah says, that the Torah divides Yaakov's family into groups based on his wives, Leah, Rachel, Bila, Zilpa. It says with Leah, there were 33 people in, the, in that branch of the family, there were only 32. So the Rishonim struggle with this question. There's a famous Midrash that says that number 70, number 33, was Yochebet. Why was she not listed earlier in the, early, in the tally of, the, of the, the actual tally, the enumeration of the members of the family? Because she wasn't born yet. Yochebet was Nolda Bein HaChomos. She was born under the wire as they entered Egypt. The earlier tally, which lists as they went down to Mitzrayim, she wasn't around yet, so she's not listed. When they entered Egypt, then there were 70, because she, she was born with the entry into Egypt. That's why it says 70 later, even though it only lists 69, and, and, and it says 33 three later, even, it says 33, even though it only lists 30, 32. Yochever was born at the last minute. This is the Midrash. Ibn Ezra is very unhappy with this. He says that it's a drash. Tema, he says, Lomelo Pella, the same Kasha he asked Makas Dam. If this is really true, that Yochever was born upon the entry to Egypt, then she would have been extremely old when she gave birth to Moshe. Moshe, the Torah tells us explicitly, was 80 years old. When he, when he confronted Paro and led the Jews out of Egypt. The Jews were in Mitzrayim, we don't know for sure, the Midrashim say 210 years, other Rishonim give other figures, but it's around in the 200 plus years. So if Moshe was 80 when they left Egypt after 200 something years, that means Yocheved was 130 years old when she gave birth to him. The Torah makes such a big deal out of Sarah's giving birth to, to, to Yitzchak at 90 years old, Yocheved was nearly 50% as old again. 150% as old as, as old as Sarah. Why wouldn't the Torah say something about this if this, this is such a remarkable mace? Says, furthermore, Ibn Ezra says there is a piyot, a piyot that we say on Simchas Torah, where they say Yochevet actually survived Moshe. She died after Moshe, which would have made her, Moshe died at 120. So if she was at least 130, she was 130 when she gave birth to him, and he died at 120. She would have been 250 years old when she lived to be 250. 
Chazal do this about many people, as Ramban points out. Chazal have many, say many people, Sarah Pasasher, various people Chazal say were really, really old, when lived to a really long time. Okay. Ibn Ezra feels the same point. Achara Kasev Nirdof. Lomelo Hizkara Kasev, such a thing, he says. It's the Derek of the Torah, Timotim of Arsim Nisim. He says, Chazal do say such things, he says. But these are Derech HaGado, Divra Yachin. He dismisses this as just a Midrash or a minority opinion. He says, and how do you explain the 33 and the 70? He says, that's because we're counting Yaakov with, with Leah's children, counting Yaakov in the 70. Fine. I'll call upon him so that Ben Ezra dismisses Chazal's approach. Chazal dismisses Chazal's approach that Yochevi was born Ben Achamos. It's not Pshat, he says. It's adding, it's adding gratuitous Nisim that are not mentioned in the Torah, and he does not accept it. Ramban is very, very unhappy. He says, first of all, he points out that, that Ibn Ezra can't really, logically speaking, he says Ibn Ezra doesn't really accomplish anything. If you, want to, what, if you don't want to say Yocheva was, 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 was 130 when she gave birth to Moshe, what's the solution? She was the daughter of Levi, so what's the solution? That she was born a while after they entered Mitzrayim. She was born maybe, uh, she was, that, that she was born maybe 70 years after they entered Mitzrayim. So she was, let's say, 50 when she gave birth to Moshe. Uh, she had 50 and uh, 70 years. She would have been 60 when she gave birth. She was born 80 years after they entered Mitzrayim. She would have been 50 when she gave birth to Moshe. Says, says the Ramban, how old was Levi when he gave birth to Yocheven? She was the daughter of Levi. It says Bas Levi. Most, most, people, most of the commentaries assume Bas Levi means literally she was the daughter of Levi, not granddaughter, but daughter. Levi was born many, many years ago. Levi was born back before, before, before Yaakov left, right after he married Rachel and Leib. He Back in, in, in back when, when, back, back when, uh, back, back decades earlier. And if you're going to say Levi didn't give birth till 70 years, didn't father Yocheva till 70 years, 80 years after he entered Mitzrayim, then Levi would have been super old when he gave birth to, uh, to Yocheva. That's also a tremendous nace. And if you say that, uh, that Yocheva was born, let's say, a few decades after they entered Egypt, then there's Nisim on both ends. Yocheva would have been really old, like 100 or 80 or 100, and Levi would have been relatively old. So no matter, no matter, no matter, how, you, no matter how you juggle the numbers, he says, However you look at it, there's going to be somebody here who is somebody or both of them who are really, really old. There's simply no way to make Moshe's mother, who when Moshe was 80 when he left Egypt, make Moshe's mother and Levi, who was born such a long time earlier, the years have to be distributed somewhere. Somebody was really, really old, or both of them were. So either way, there's a nace that Torah is not mentioning. So Ramban in general is very unhappy with Ibn Ezra's general attitude of rejection of Nisim that are not mentioned in the Psukim. There are many, many Nisim that Midrashim tell us that are not in the Psukim. The Urkastim, the, the whole, the, another very popular Midrash that Avram was cast by Nimrod into a fiery furnace for his rejection of idols and Hashem saved him. That's a Midrash. That, that's not mentioned in the Torah. Urkastim is, is Darshan, that Ur means fire and Kastim means of the Chaldeans, the fire of the Chaldeans who, who, who cast out Avram into a fire. That's Midrash. That's not in the Psukim. So Ibn Ezra tends to reject all of these, and Ramban strongly disagrees. Ramban says that he, 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 does, he does acknowledge that Ibn Ezra has a question that needs to be answered. If these Nisim really occurred, why does the Torah not make a big deal out of them, he says. So the Ramban explains, the Torah only records Nisim which were foretold by Nevi'im, which were prophesied by a Navi. The Torah wants to, wants to emphasize and underscore that prophecy is real, prophecy is genuine, and that Nevi'im have genuine knowledge about the future. So anytime a Navi publicly foretold, publicly announced a miracle, as in Parshas Ve'era, where the three Malachim came to Avram and they said, in another year you're going to have a child, and Avram did, that was a nace that was formally foretold by, by Hashem, by, by his Malachim. So there he says, the Torah talks about the nace, to show that, uh, that God's communication with humanity is real. But the fact that Hashem performs an unannounced nace to help his tzaddikim or to punish Rishayim, the Torah doesn't mention it all the time, he says, because the whole Torah is full of that. The Ramban has a famous doctrine, the whole Torah is full of Nisim Nistarim. Again, I'm not sure why Nisim Nistarim, we're talking about a nace Niglaher, not a nace Nistar, but the Ramban says, anyway, the Hashem's whole relationship with Yisrael, with his tzaddikim, are anyway based on Nisim. All the, all the schar of the Torah, that, that, that's not Derech HaTeva, we don't believe in some kind of karma that it's Derech HaTeva, that if you do good, then you experience good. If you do bad, you experience bad. It's all Nisim, he says. The fact that you have rain if you fulfill God's wishes and you have famine if you don't, that, that, that's all Nisim, he says. So all of our and all, all based on Nisim, all the tefillos of Davra Melech, all of our tefillos. So in general, he says, yes, the whole world, Hashem's Hanhaga, Hashem's, Hashem's running of the entire world is full of miracles, and Hashem does not always talk about it, and the, and the Torah does not always publicize that. The Nisim were specifically those Nisim that were foretold by Nevi'im. But there's lots of other Nisim which are not foretold by Nevi'im, which the Torah does not talk about.
Okay, so we're not going to we're not going to go too much deeper into the into an analysis of the Ramban's doctrine and how well it holds up throughout the Torah. But the point is, Ibn Ezra, based on his based on his idea of 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 Akhara of Nirdof and of uh Kasuf, based on his fidelity to the what the text actually says, is typically reluctant to accept Nisim that aren't stated in the Torah. While Ramban says no, Ramban says we have to we have to accept Chazal, we follow them in Drashim. Why doesn't the Torah mention that? I have Tarutim for that, he says. I, I have explanations for that. But Rahman feels that we should be taking Chazal more seriously. We should follow Chazal, despite the fact that the, that the events they record, the Nisim that they describe, are not always told, are not always described clearly in the Pesukim. Returning now to the controversy over the Pshutr Shalmech The objections of the, of the conservative thinkers who, who are objecting to the Chumash fall into basically two categories. They, they, they don't like the focus on chat to the debt to the, at the expense of Midrash. They think that Midrash is important, Midrash should be taught, Rashi should be taught. In some versions of their objection, they don't even accept that Rashi is not Pashab Shat. Ravaren Feldman has a, has a widely circulated letter, Rashiva of Ner Yisrael. He says that, he says that we have a Masori, he says, that Pirush Rashi is Pshutosh Mikra. That you can't say Rashi is Midrash and I'm going to tell you Pshutoshal Mikra. Nope, Aramisara is, Rashi is Pshutoshal Mikra. Even though, yes, he says, there were, of course, we shown who disagreed with Rashi and said what Rashi said was not Pshutoshal Mikra. Okay, so it's Machlokas, he says. Who made you in charge? You know, who, who made you the arbiter, he says, to decide what is Pshutoshal Mikra or not? We have a Misara in which Rashi is preeminent, he says. Not just preeminent as important, but preeminent as Pshatra, Feldman says. And we have to accept that Rashi is Pshat. Others have said including other distinguished people I've heard of the name of, have said, who says it? Rashi did say that he's going to try to explain Pshat, but Rashi doesn't deny that he... Rashi says he's going to say Pshat, and also he's going to teach Medrash, certain Midrashim, which are important to resolve certain, to resolve certain problems with the biblical text. Rashi doesn't say he's always going to stick exclusively to Pshat. In any event, uh, that, that's the Akashal Torah. We, we, we don't generally privilege one Rishon and say that uh, only, only his... No one, that you have to follow this Rishon. Certain communities of the Svardim accepted the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch, but in general... We, we, we don't give any one authority, no matter how venerated, the monopoly on, uh, on anything, on halacha, on, on being the authoritative explanation of anything. It's not clear what's wrong with teaching other Rishonim. Other Rishonim certainly didn't think Rashi was Pshat, didn't think it was the right Pshat all the time. The, the Rashbam famously challenges Rashi in several places on whether he really did a uh, proper job on explaining Alpi Pshat. So the idea that, that, it's, some, that it's somehow problematic to, uh, to, to focus on Pshat at the expense of Rashi it's not easy. It's not really. It's not really so easy to understand why that would, why that's an issue. The second reason Rafelman gives is that they they make the Torah much more mundane. If you study their their pirush, the pirush mikramale, their pshat pirush ala Torah, what emerges is the avos didn't have constant miracles. He says the stones didn't tell Yaakov Avinu, please, but the, the tzaddik should put his head on me. Another very popular midrash that the kids are taught. He didn't have pizza sederach on, on, on his journey uh, on his journeys. You have a much more mundane and down-to-earth and naturalistic explanation of the Chumash. And Risharim, like Esav, weren't uh, congenital Risharim. They weren't Risharim, Ibet, and Imam. Um, again, I'm not sure what's so bad about that, as we've discussed in the past. Is, is, is it better to say that Tzadikim uh, merit praise because they worked on themselves to be Tzadikim, that they weren't born naturally Tzadikim? Or is it better to say they were born Tzadikim? Is it better to, say, is it, is it better to understand Risharim as having been evil, evil spawned from birth? Or is it better to say they had a choice and they chose evil? We discussed the famous story about the portrait of Moshe Rabbeinu, where there, there's a, there, was, there was a there was a midrashic account that circulated that said that Moshe Rabbeinu was born with the temperament of a scoundrel, of a villain, but he but because but he, but he overcame it and became a great man. The story, I mean, midrashic is maybe a poor choice of words. The story first appears in Jewish sources in the 19th century. It's not exactly an old and venerable story, but in terms of whether the message of the story is acceptable, there were some thinkers who thought that this was. Uh, a terrible slander against Moshe. How could you say Moshe was any, at any point in his life less than perfect? Others said, on the contrary, it, it, it's a great and inspiring lesson. The Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't great because Hashem made him that way. Moshe Rabbeinu was great because he was a human being who uh, overcame his natural base inclinations to become Moshe Rabbeinu. So, so, the, so again, so Rafaelman says that if you don't believe Esav was a Russian Mibetan, that's somehow uh, religiously a problem. There are Midrashim that says that when Rivka passed the base of Adazara, Esav would uh, struggle to get out. So there are certainly Midrashim that indicate that he was bad from birth, but somehow that's a religious conviction we have to have that Esav was a Russian Mibetan. Again, I'm not sure why. Why that's so important. 
Anyway, Rafaelman says, someone who studies his Pirush will lose many places, many, many ideas where Chazal have stressed the, the holiness of the, of the Avos and the Risharm of Risharm. It's a much more uh, Manichian, much more black and white. Uh, the, 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 the traditional Midrashic approach is a much more black and white and starkly uh, stark contrast between good and evil and miraculous and mundane. And uh, it's very important, especially with kids, it's very important they learn the traditional approach, not the approach of Pshat. Again, it's, uh, that's good for the debate. The debate is, yes, the Midrashim do teach an approach which is much more black and white and it's uh, tr- tremendous good and tremendous evil and, and, and much less mundane, full of miraculous and wondrous things. But that's the question. Is that the only way to learn Chumash? Is that the only way to teach kids Chumash or not? It doesn't seem self-evident that that's the only way to learn, only way to learn Chumash. And the truth is, as Rafaelman really acknowledges, that there are those who uh, there are those who uh, who, who disagree with Rashi. Rafaelman concludes his letter. Rafaelman wrote several letters. I, I haven't seen his latest one, but he wrote several letters. And this letter, which was one of his middle letters, I think, he said that you know, he has no problem with people writing Hamashim, which they quote other Rishonim who explain Midrash Pshat, not like Midrash, not like Rashi, but they but they shouldn't try to dethrone Rashi and they shouldn't make it the central Pshat. He says what he what, what he wants them to do is if in the main text, the, 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 main, the main Mikra Mole Pirush should follow Rashi, and in the notes, in the, in the commentary, in the, in the secondary commentary that should write, there are other explanations, Yesh Omrim, there are other explanations. As long as they give preeminence to Rashi, and include him in the main Pirush, and include the other Pshatim only as secondary opinions, and they shouldn't uh, rule against Rashi in terms of Pshat, that'll be fine, he says. Again, not, not so clear. The, the cogency of his objections is not entirely clear. But these are, these, are the, these, are, these are basically the objections of the traditionalists that A, that we shouldn't be sliding Rashi by saying he didn't get the Pshat correct, and, he, and we should assume that Rashi is trying to explain Pshat, and B, we, should, we need to emphasize, we need to study and focus on the, the, the black and white ideas of Chazal, the, the, the ideas that there were miracles all over the place, and that the contrast between Tzadikim and Rishayim is very stark and very sharp, and that, that's what Dora Feldman and many of the other critics of the Pshutish Mikra have said. And the truth is, this is an important point, I think, not always fully appreciated, that when we talk about the conflict between Midrash and Rashi on the one hand, and Ibn Ezra and Rashbam and the Mepharshi Pshat on the other hand, we've been kind of going back and forth between two issues. One issue is, in terms of purely exegetical perspectives, do you, do you adopt an Akharakos of Nirdof, a Pshat text-focused approach, as opposed to one in which we add all kinds of external things from Midrash. And there's a second question, which is, do we adopt a, 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 a rationalistic, down-to-earth, uh, naturalistic view of the world, that the world is largely a place run according to the laws of nature that we're familiar with, with Nisim being very much the exception, the rare exception? Or do we say, that no, that the world is full of miracles, around every corner are miraculous things, that, the, that, that nothing is what it seems, and miracles occur all over the place? These are two very different perspectives toward the world, toward Chumash. People sometimes assume that these two things are linked, that these two things go together, that the Mepharshi Apshat typically end up with a much more down-to-earth, naturalistic view of the world, while the Midrashim end up with a, much more, with a much more supernatural view of the world. There's some truth to that. It's not totally wrong, as, as the examples we've been discussing tonight, where Ibn Ezra, based on Pshat, rejects various Midrashim. On the other hand, it's by no means, uh, it's by no means a, a 100% correlation. There are cases where a simple reading of the Chumash will indicate that miracles did occur, that supernatural and marvelous things did occur, and it's, it's, it's Dafka the philosophers, because of their philosophical convictions, that read the Psukim in more forced or less natural ways in order to minimize the supernatural. For example, also in this week's Pasha, it says that uh, Moshe and Aaron turned water into blood and turned, snake into, uh, turned stick into snake, the Khartoum of Mitzrayim, Paro sorcerers did the same thing. Simple reading of the Psukim is Paro had sorcerers who could, uh, who were proficient in black magic. Some Rishonim, some thinkers, have a philosophical commitment that magic is not real. And therefore they say, no, the Psukim are describing sleight of hand, they're describing illusion, they're describing uh, what it looked like to the people of the time. You can debate uh, how much of a deviation from Pshat that is, but I think it's clear that the literal simple explanation that Paros Khartoumim did magic is certainly what, uh, if you come to the Psukim with no preconceived notions of how the world works, you would probably say, and some Rishonim made this point, they said the Psukim are clear that Paros did magic. Those Rishonim who could not accept that Paros did magic said it was illusion or said it was uh, so on, read the Psukim differently. Similarly, in the end of Sefer Shmuel Aleph, we have the story of Shaul and the witch of Eindar, the Balas Oath. 
Shaul is desperate for some kind of communication with Hashem. Hashem, he's in disgrace, Hashem is upset at him, Hashem refuses to communicate with him through the normal channels, through Nevuah, through Urim So Shaul, in his desperation, he seeks out a Balasov, a necromancer who could raise, who apparently could raise the shades of the dead, and people could communicate with the departed, with, with departed people. So she asks, who do you want me to raise? He says, Shmuel, his great mentor Shmuel. She does so, the Psukim describe her as raising the spirit of Shmuel, Shmuel talks to Shaul, he, he tells him the, 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 his fate, which is grim, he's going to die the next day, it's going to be a terrible it's, it's a catastrophe, and he and his sons will die. The Psukim pretty clearly are describing a woman who had the power to raise people from the dead. Yet, the Gaonim, the Gaonim who we say called the Ramzi for Kabbalah, that they were, they, have, they were very close to the time of the Talmud, relatively close, the Gaonim said, it, it's not true, he says, the Gaonim says, there is no such thing as human capability, magical capabilities of raising the dead. Cannot be. No way, no how. The Balasov were frauds. The Balasov were frauds, as they are today. They were charlatans. So what happened in that story? The Psukim seemed to describe somebody raising the dead. So, so there, there are two opinions. Radak brings all this. He says, Rav Shul ben Chafni, who was something of a radical in the Gaonic school, says that the whole thing was a fraud. Everything the, Torah, everything the Navi describes there was the way things appeared to Shul. Shul was... Was, was Shaul was credible. Shaul, Shaul, Shaul had a credulous attitude. He believed that the Balasov was real. And the Navi describes what happened from his perspective. But the whole thing was she pulled the wool over his eye. She had a guy who was hiding, who would throw his voice. And the whole thing was bogus. And the whole thing is describing, as we to use modern terminology, the, describing the events from his perspective. But none of it actually happened. Roshul ben Chafni has a great line, the, the rationalist credo. He says, even though the implication of Chazal is, of the, the words of Chazal uh, is that they believe these things, we can't accept it because it's against Sechel, he says. So that's what Chazal seems to believe, he says, but not acceptable. It's against Sechel. Other Gaonim, the, some of the more famous Gaonim, Rav, uh, I think Rav, Rav, Rav Hai and Rav Sadia, the, the Radak brings, they say that no, the Psukim are clearly describing something real. But she was a charlatan, but Hashem, for whatever reason, Hashem wanted to communicate finally with Shaul. And, and he still didn't want to do it through Nevuah, apparently, but he decided to actually bring Shmuel back from the dead. And the woman would have been really surprised, because she was the one who actually knew that everything she did was bogus, and all of a sudden Shmuel actually is appearing from the dead. So according to, so according to them, the Pesukim are describing what actually happened, at least, but, the, but not, not because of any great power of hers, because Hashem decided to, uh, to, to scare the wits out of her by actually bringing Shmuel back from the dead. I'll call upon him again. Some of the Gaonim are saying that this story uh, never happened. It's all from Shaul's perspective. So again, sometimes it, it, it's the philosophical approach that tells us not to take the, 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 the biblical text at face value because the biblical text is asserting things which we simply do not want to accept actually happened. There are two stories in Sefer Malachim, two very similar stories where Eliyahu and Elisha raise dead children back to life. They resuscitate them from the dead. There's a story of Elisha, Eliyahu, and the widow from Tsarfas, whose boy dies and he, and, he, and he resuscitates her. There's a story of Elisha and the Shunamis, the woman from Shunam, who again, it's one of the Haftaris we read, where the, the boy is dead and Elisha brings the child back to life. The Torah uses the word mace, he's dead. It seems to be a pretty unambiguous, uh, pretty unambiguous term. Yet, there were some Rishonim who believed the children were not dead. They were reluctant to say that Tchias and Mesim occurred here. It doesn't seem to be a, a case of great national need, perhaps, or a, a case of, it wasn't, it wasn't such a critical and important thing that God would have performed Tchias and Mesim, perhaps. Whatever the reason is, there, there, there were Rishonim who maintained that these boys were not dead. The Pasuk says, Vayamas, they were mace, but clearly because of some kind of philosophical conviction that, that a naysayer did, didn't fit into their assumptions about when Nisim occur, they said that uh, it doesn't mean mace. He was almost dead, you know, keep thinking of Mark Twain about the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. So that the Navi was maybe exaggerating a little bit how dead they actually were. But they weren't actually dead. So the... So the... So the... Yes, yeah, so sometimes philosophical convictions cause you to interpret the Chumash perhaps less bederich hapshat, because... So, but, but, so, so they're not always aligned. The, the focus of the Mepharshi hapshat is not always the identical focus to the focus of the, the philosophers. But it is true that, in general, it is true that the, the, there is a certain alignment. It's not perfect, and it's not logically uh, equivalent, but there is a certain alignment between the Mepharshi Apshat and the, the rationalists, the philosophers, who tended to advocate for a more, for a more uh, rationalist worldview. As the Rambam says in Igeris Tchiesa he says, he says, my attitude is diametrically opposed to the attitude of the masses. The masses, the religious masses, he says, 
they're happiest when they introduce the most Nisim. The more Nisim they can find around every corner, another Nase hair, another miracle hair, that makes them happy, he says. But me, people like people who have more, more sophisticated understandings of things, we, tr- we try to minimize Nisim. God does perform miracles occasionally, he said, but that's not God's will. He doesn't want to perform miracles constantly. He designed the world to run according to the laws of nature, and miracles are relatively rare. I, I, my, my goal is the opposite, to try to explain as much as I can naturalistically and only stipulate a nace when it's clear and unavoidable that that's what the Torah is trying to tell us. But I'll call upon him, so the, there is a certain alignment between Pshat and, and Midrash, and between Pshat and nat- naturalism, and between Midrash and a more supernatural approach, but it's by no means identical, and as we said, there are many exceptions. And the truth is, among the Mepharshia Pshat, there really are two different categories. There were some, like Ibn Ezra, like Ralbag, who were noted philosophers, who, were, who, who had systematic, uh, well-articulated, well, you know, who had systematic and sophisticated views of the world. They had all kinds of philosophical assumptions about how the world works. And their attitudes, of, their, their, their ideas of pshat very likely were influenced by their philosophical commitments. The, the, the ultimate expression of this is a passage in Ralbag, in, 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 the Ralbag, because of his Aristotelian theories of cosmology, he believed that miracles cannot affect the celestial bodies. He believes that the agent in charge of miracles, the active intellect, the Seichel Apoel, is below in, uh, in, in, in the hierarchy of, uh, of angels and heavenly bodies, is below the celestial bodies, and therefore he has no power over them. So miracles can never affect the celestial bodies. There are two places in Tanakh where miracles are described as having occurred with the sun, with the sun and the moon, celestial bodies. The Midrashim have other ones, but there are two in the Pesukim themselves. One is the, the, the Amidah, Sashemesh for Yeshua, Shemesh Begivon Dome, Vireach Be'emekai alone. And the other is a story, a lesser known story of Yeshai and Chizkiah, where Chizkiah is deathly ill, and, Yishai, and, he, does, and he, he teaches Hashem for more life, and Yeshai says, Hashem granted him more life, and Chizkiah says, Give me a sign. Yeshai says, What kind of sign do you want? So Chizkiah says, I want the sun to move backwards in the sky. Hashav Tselamalo Sacharanis, I want to see the sun retrogress through the sky. So there's a whole discussion about that, but the Hashem, the Psukim seem to describe a nace in which the, heavenly, the motion of the heavenly bodies is altered. Cesar al-Bag cannot be. No way, no how. Nisim cannot affect the sun or the heavenly bodies. What are these Psukim describing? Al-Bag has elaborate reinterpretations of the Psukim. Al-Bag says in the Yeshua, where it says, Shemesh begivon dom, v'yerech be'emekai alone, it just means the battle occurred so quickly, the, the sun virtually didn't move in its place, the, the miracle, the, they had so much uh, divine uh, salvation that the, that the battle was over in a blink of an eye, the sun barely moved, and I think that's what he says, and with, and with the, the psukim in, in, about the Tzel Hamalos of Chizkiah, he says it has to do with the clouds and reflections of the sun, it doesn't mean the sun actually stopped. The morale was not a fan of the Ralbag. The morale was a much more traditional thinker, the morale, the morale was appalled at the Ralbag's philosophy, and in the Hakdama to Gvuras Hashem, he has one of the most epic takedowns in rabbinic literature. He says about the Ralbag, he, criti- he sharply criticizes his ideas, and he says that the Ralbag, the, the, the approach of the Ralbag to these Psukim, he says, is, he says that the Ralbag's Perushim, he says, are Kilkel Bixuvim, Pagam Benavim. He has damaged Bixuvim and uh, caused Pagam and the Nevi'im. He made Perushim of Tohu Vavohu. And it was the schus of the Nevi'im, it was the great merit of the prophets, he says, that his perushim are so far out and so far-fetched that nobody will believe them. No, nobody will take his perushim seriously. No, nobody, nobody will listen. Because if his perushim would have been a little more plausible, he said, then maybe the chasrei das, those lacking intellect, would have been seduced by his perushim. But now, his perushim are so ridiculous that nobody will take them seriously. That was the great merit of the Nevi'im, that his perushim... So this is an example of a case where the Ralbag, who generally was a great Pashtun, sometimes had philosophical convictions that were, that were so, uh, he was so committed to that he was forced to interpret Sukkim in ways that are perhaps very far from Shah. At the end of the day, so these are two not equivalent things. That, and as I said, the, the, of the Mepharshi Pshat, there were some who were motivated at least generally, at least sometimes, by perhaps rationalism and by a, uh, by a naturalistic worldview like Ibn Ezra, like Ralbag. There were others who were not. People like the Rashbam. The, 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 in the school of the Balaitosvis, there were many Rishonim who were very interested in Pshat. People have sometimes said that the Rishonim didn't, didn't really, weren't really interested in Chumash per se. All they studied was Midrash. This is very far from the truth. Many of the greatest of the Mepharshi Abshat were actually French and German Chachamim in the, in the Tosafist school. Rashbam, Bechar Shar, Yosef Bechar Shar. 
some of the greatest in the Mefarshi Pshat were actually, and, and the Balitosis loved Pshat. There's so many of the Perushim, Gelis has Balitosis Alatara, thousands of hundreds, thousands of pages of the commentaries, manuscript published of Tosfos Alatara. And they, they bring plenty of Midrash, yes. They, they, they were not, uh, they, they didn't have elaborate, systematic, philosophical worldviews. They were, they, they, they were pretty much Torah and nothing else to a large extent. But that doesn't mean they, they but they still love Pshat. The Bacharshar and many of them, they, they love Pshat. They, they love studying the, the words of the Chumash, the, the simple reading of the Chumash, understanding Chumash on its own terms. They were not motivated by, by philosophy or by any kind of uh, naturalistic worldview. They were motivated by a love for the text of the Chumash, the, a belief wherever it came from that, the, that there is value and meaning to studying the text of the Chumash on its own. And that was the, and that was the, that was the, that, that was a shita that, that was very well developed among the Balitosis. So, the, so there really are two separate things. There's pshat and there's, and, there's, and there's midrash. And there's also there's naturalism and there's a more supernatural view of the world. They often go together, but not always. And we'll close with one final, with one final uh, example of Bukhar Shar, returning back to, to, the, to where we started, the, the discussion of the... Returning back to where we started, the discussion of what happened in Makasdam, what happened to the, to the Jews... Bukhar Shar has a fascinating pshat, uh, very different from both approaches we saw, what happened during Makastam. Bukhar Shar, Bukhar Shar was a student uh, of Rabbeinu Tam, a Frenchman. He, he says as follows, he says, I don't think the, the R turned into blood, only, it, only, it only turned into blood momentarily, he says. Oso Shah. He says, and immediately afterward turned back into, to, to, and afterward it turned back into water. That moment was enough to kill all the fish. He says, when the Pasuk says that the Mitzrayim couldn't drink from the R, because it was blood, it doesn't say because it was blood. Why couldn't they drink from the yard? It says because the fish died and it stank. It says it says it says that they couldn't drink water from the yard because because of all the dead fish. That was the plague. The plague was it it, it for briefly turned and how briefly, but it briefly turned into blood, and that killed all the fish. And that's why, and that's why they couldn't drink it. Not because there was no water. It was just smelly water, fish smelly, dead fish smelly water. That's how the Khartoum were able to turn water into blood. We discussed the question before, where did they get water from? There was no water. The answer is because they, it only turned into blood briefly, and then it went back into water. So the Khartoum had plenty of water to work with. This, so this, so this, was, this would not seem to be like the Midrash or Ibn Ezra. The, this would, the, the Midrash says that it stayed blood. It stayed blood even when the Egyptians were trying to drink it, unless they paid for it. According to Bukhar Shari, there was no blood. It all went back into water. It just stayed blood very briefly. And, and, and that's presumably why they survived for seven days. It wasn't great to drink water that smelled of dead fish, but it wasn't lethal. They were able to drink it. It, was, it only briefly turned into water, and it was all impregnated with the smell of dead fish. This is just an example of the creativity and some of the, the fascinating ideas that the Balitos came up with. I don't know if this is motivated by any philosophical approach. I, I don't think so. It's just that this is how Bukhar Shah understands the Psukim, based on various Diyukim and the Psukim. This is yet a third approach. It's not like the Midrash. It's not like Ibn Ezra either. It doesn't suffer... I don't know if he would say this affected the Jews as well. It sounds like he would say this affected the Jews. He doesn't say it didn't. The Torah feels that's religiously unacceptable. Why would God smite the Jews? But anyway, this is Bukhar Shar's approach that the water turned into blood, but only briefly. After that, it was water, but it was foul and filthy water full of, full of dead fish and the odors of dead fish. And that was the plague of Dam. That was how he understands the, the first of the ten plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians.